It's a system based on fossil fuels. It blames you for the electricity system. It blames you for the transportation system. But everybody is living in the only system they've been given. We know from psychology that when the body experiences shame, it doesn't motivate you to act. It motivates you to sit down and sit back and feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want people to feel bad. I want them to feel inspired. And the beauty is that there is so much economic opportunity associated with solving the climate crisis. So if we can look wide-eyed, not turn away from the problems and the reality of how this impacts some communities more than others, then we can also look at how we can solve climate change for everybody, right? Clean electricity for all. We can put people back to work. We can invest in communities that have been left behind. We can clean up everybody's air. That's what the promise of addressing climate change can do. My goal is to give more people access to the climate movement and make the climate movement fight for everybody. My name is Molly Kawahata, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking with Molly Kawahata. Molly is a former policy advisor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House, where she helped implement President Obama's energy agenda and climate action plan. Since leaving the White House, Molly has worked with leading brands, corporations, nonprofits, activists, influencers, and community organizations on climate communications and advocacy. She's basically helping folks with communications and framing, focusing their work on systemic climate action, engaging effectively with the public, and making the climate movement more inclusive. Because it's through systemic change and understanding how climate impacts all of us, as well as marginalized communities, that we're going to make any real change. Molly is an unabashed idealist. Her ultimate goal is to give everybody (laughs) access to the climate movement and make the movement a fight for everybody, focusing on systemic change. And and honestly, on top of all that, she's a really rad ice climber. (laughs) She's amazing. She's so amazing. What I really loved about Molly, too, and this is a story that's going to stick with me for probably forever, is she talked to us about her own experience going back to the internment camps where her grandparents were interned during World War II and told us some pretty interesting stories about both her family history and some interactions that happened, but what it was like for her to go back there and actually see it firsthand. Yeah. And Molly's a a friend of a friend of the pod. (laughs) Our longtime friend and fellow podcaster Jay Veraldi over at Animalia has had Molly speak at a number of his events and podcasts. And that's where we first kind of discovered kind of not just Molly's enthusiasm and her take and her experience, but her unique point of view that, frankly, is the right point of view about climate, how to make it inclusive, how to think about the broader impact beyond kind of like this niche movement. It's it's taking on steam because people are understanding how it's going to impact all of our lives. Yeah, you can feel her enthusiasm as she talks about it. It was absolutely infectious. And I think that's something that Remen and I had totally experienced by chatting with her about this. And she just has a way of inspiring change. Yeah, we really think you're just going to enjoy our chat with our new friend, Molly. 
Molly, welcome to the pod. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So Molly, I think people might have Googled you and know a little bit about you, but I guess the thing we all want to know is where are you from? I'm originally from the Bay Area, south of San Francisco, California. And Molly, do you ever get a follow-up question from people where they ask you where you are really from? Oh, yes, of course. Or, or what are you? <laughs> right, right, right. I, I love how they just changed the word. You don't even get a who anymore. Now it's a what. <laughs> are you a Martian? A human? What are you? And how do you answer that question? Yeah, I am biracial Japanese American. And so you're biracial Japanese American. So part Japanese and what's the other part? At, like ethnicity wise, half Italian. Wow. So I grew up being told I was Japalian. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what is that? And then you don't get an answer. <laughs> I love that. So what was it like growing up? I feel, I feel Jap, racist. Jap, Jap yeah. Italian? Yeah. <laughs> that Jap sounds so Italian. terrible. If you put the emphasis on the second A, I think it sounds less racist. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like growing up? I feel like I got more confused in early adulthood. And it is that common biracial concept, right? Of like, who are you? Mm. And I always identify with being mixed race, Asian American, uh, mm -hmm. was always very close with my Japanese grandmother who taught me so much. And for her, it was so important that I knew about and identified with this culture. I, as a kid, I actually went to this like Japanese culture camp. I used to call it Japanese camp until I realized how problematic that term is. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to this Japanese culture camp, which I think really did a lot to solidify my identity. What is, I, sorry, what is Japanese culture camp? Because if I make any assumptions about it, those are going to be racist. So like, <laughs> what do you do at Japanese culture camp? Well, you do a lot of arts around Japanese culture, learn a little bit of the language. I remember we learned how to make mochi from pounding rice. We did taiko drumming, did silk arts. Um, do like you have like mad origami skills now? I was so into origami as a kid. I did it all the time. Like every Christmas, I just decorate the table with so oh, much origami. So yes, much I, I loved it. I was reading a story to my daughter, and I came upon the fact that if you fold a thousand origami cranes, it is good luck. And I totally want to do that now. Like I think I've probably done fifteen in my life. So a thousand is a lot, though, Roman. Like after about, I've I've done maybe twenty in a row, and I was like, this is it. They're beautiful, but like that's too much work. <laughs> I remember reading a story about a girl in Hiroshima who paint, folded a thousand cranes with from the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I remember that story. So I, I wonder if that's where that comes from. I do kind of remember a story like that too. And then was there a story about stars in a jar? Like I feel like growing up people – not that stars are origami, but like people would make those jars full of folded stars as maybe. Oh, not. yes. I remember that. Right? The little ones. Yes. Yeah. Tiny little ones. And like you'd make a <clears throat> wish and put them in a jar and give them to your best friends. Yeah. I remember seeing those. I never made them. In fact, I always thought that was like the thing the white kids did with small pieces of paper. <laughs> like, Japanese, kids do, Japanese kids do cranes. The Americans <laughs> do the stars. Do the they stars. could totally be part of origami. I have no idea. But I just remember thinking like, oh, that's not for me. <laughs> there is a there is a bubblegum commercial that will make you cry about a dad making origami cranes for his daughter. So I'll put that in the Aww, show notes. What, yeah. what bubblegum brand? <laughs> that's how you know it's a bad ad. I, I just know it's a bubblegum ad. I don't know what brand it is. <laughs> Molly, all right, all right. Back to you, though. So, <laughs> I, I mean, 
so what was the role of your Japanese heritage? So you had a relationship with grandma. She or mom or dad sent you away to Japanese camp where you did not <laughs> learn how to fold cranes. But <laughs> from my understanding from a lot of guests that we've talked to is like West Coast Asians, you grew up around a lot of other Asian people. So it wasn't that much of a difference thing until you're kind of got a little older. Exactly. That's what was fascinating. I remember people always asking about being biracial in America. Like, I don't know, like strangers would always ask me. And, I, and you're I like, welcome like, to California. Yeah. Right, and right. I remember I, I worked in this restaurant and, and I do remember like this guy just staring at me and I was so uncomfortable. And then he came up and he was just like, what are you? And he was like, are you Brazilian? Because it's a Brazilian restaurant. And sometimes I just like joke and just be like, just like say random things. But usually I was never guessed to be Asian American. And I did grow up in the Bay Area where there were a lot of biracial kids. And I remember having this distinct identity of being Hapa or half Asian, right? It was like, you were just biracial. And Wait, Hapa, was- is that a term? Yeah, it is. It comes from Hawaii, where Ah. my grandparents first immigrated. But yeah, it's a term for half Asian or Japanese half Asian. And I've had people be like, that sounds like a racial slur. (laughs) (laughs) But there it was its own distinct identity. And it wasn't until I moved to Washington, D.C., which is fascinating, because that is a very progressive city. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of folks who, for some reason, I remember doesn't like that it, depend on what four years it is, though? That's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It's still point. progressive, believe it or not. It's actually okay. a majority black city. Yeah, it mm. has this amazing culture that people don't even know about across mm. the river. But mm. anyway, that said, it is. This is why they don't want to give DC statehood ever because two mm. new senators would mm-hmm, be really mm-hmm, problematic. Mm-hmm. That would always be progressive. So that aside, I remember for some reason being kind of shocked that even from progressives, like racist jokes about Asians were somehow okay nobody really? else like everybody else was like oh no we we know better but like Asian do you Americans- think do you man this is gonna sound terrible but do you think some of that is because i've been i've literally been coming to grips with some of the stuff i let fly in my teen years part of the asian american mentality is to fit in and just kind of run mm-hmm. with the joke like i did the accent do you think that's why maybe it's accepted even in progressive circles i don't know i've actually never mm-hmm. thought about it i've just been like that's not cool like what yeah no i agree you're just, yeah. and you're really surprised by the messenger right when it is like uh, a progressive and you're just like where does this come from or uh, yeah Mm. maybe it's not immediately understood to be to sound racist the way a joke about other people of color would be Mm. I don't know but it was just fascinating to me and and it was in early adulthood that people started imposing a racial identity onto me and it's happened multiple times from both white folks and Asian Americans people interpret being biracial as ambiguous and mm-hmm. therefore think they have the authority to tell you what your racial identity is. And that's been really painful for me in the past, but it is something I started to experience. And then it is the classic, you're not Asian enough to be Asian. You're not white enough to be white. And you're mm-hmm. like, who am I? Yeah. How does that come out though, when they're imposing that upon you? They just tell you what you are. And it is painful because it's a form of erasure, right? Yeah. When somebody tells you you're just, you're a white person. When I think about like, my grandma and my family's identity as Japanese Americans. And I have a lot of stories around that. Like I think a big part of Japanese American culture is internment, is like the history of internment Mm -hmm. in America. And it's fascinating because it's something that's not talked about often, especially for those who were interned, like my grandparents and my whole family, but it is a part of who you grow up to be. 
and your identity. And I have like distinct moments when that hit me hard. So it's kind of erasure when somebody tells you what you are and it doesn't fit your understanding of who you are. Could you tell us a story about a time when that has happened? Yeah. So when I was a kid and I was probably nine years old, I came home and my dad was cooking dinner and on Mm -hmm. TV was a black and white documentary about Japanese American internment during World War II. And I knew the story and I knew it was a sad story and he wasn't paying attention to it. I was like, dad, can you turn off the TV? This makes me sad. And I remember thinking that was kind of bold of me to be like, oh, I I just want to turn this off. And -hmm. I remember he turned to me and he looked deeply in my eyes in a really jarring way. And he said, Molly, this story is part of who we are. You can't ever forget where you come from. Mm -hmm. And that was so powerful for me because it was this concept of discomfort, right? And enduring discomfort because you want to look away. Yeah. It's easier for like human comfort for our bodies to look away and to just be like, I don't want to think about this. But then you think about like racism in America today. You think about politicians we elect who are blatantly, proudly racist. You think about Mm. like the history, the truth of what this country has done. Mm -hmm. And I think of myself as like very proud to be an American, but I do also think about that as like looking wide-eyed at the truth behind this country and the fact that racism was a cornerstone of how it was built, right? Like racist outcomes or inequality in America, they're not natural outcomes, right? They're policies, deliberate decisions that have been made. And so I actually went to Topaz and it was such a a part of just knowing where I came from after that and, and what my grandparents, how they suffered. And what's fascinating to me is my family growing up, they always called it camp. They'd say, at camp, we did this. Hmm. at camp that happened. Yeah. And it sounds like summer camp, right? It sounds like the edge off of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating because I actually, I thought about how it's imprisonment, right? My family was forcibly removed from their lives, from their businesses, their neighborhoods, their homes. They lost everything they owned, including those things. And they were forced into relocation to Tamaran, which is this Mm -hmm. horse track area in the Bay Area, slept in horse stalls, and then were relocated to the middle of the desert in Topaz, Utah. And I always wanted to visit there. And I just never had. And then for the first time this spring, I finally went. And I thought it would be healing because I've thought so much about how they've suffered. But it it kind of messes you up to kind of see Mm-hmm. what they saw and see an ounce of what they endured. But the stories there are incredible. They created extraordinary art at Topaz. There was actually an art school that was created. They created a poetry club. They had initiated- Yeah, I mean, there, there was like this whole internal community and culture. A bright one, a, yeah. a rich one. And I look at photos of my family from there. There were some photos taken. And what's fascinating to me is I see my grandma and her siblings and her mom And they're genuinely happy. You can see it on their face. They created joy and community and art. And those are the things that I think are best about America. And so it's fascinating to me that your country can imprison you and you can turn around and and show what it means to be an American. And I do feel like the Japanese Americans who endured that imprisonment really did show that. And several of them served in the military too, like my great uncle. And you think you're fighting for your country and that country is imprisoning your family. And he actually came to visit Topaz to see his family. He took a 14-day furlough to see them. And it was the first time they knew of that a Japanese American had come to see his family from the military. And they didn't let him in. 
And so he actually had to be escorted by an FBI agent to Salt Lake City and then was sent to Omaha, Nebraska, where he had no family in the Midwest. And so he went back to the base, having used just a couple days of his furlough. It's fascinating to think about these things, right? Like, what is it to be an American at a time like this? And how does that impact being an American today? Did your family know that he was coming to visit them? I believe so, but I don't don't know for sure. But I, I would imagine so. I do know that in the 80s, Again, this is something people don't talk about these stories, but in the 80s, he actually wrote a letter to the Department of Justice sharing his story. Hmm. And what's fascinating is like, he just tells the story. He just lets them know what happened. And as far as I know from my family, they never received a response. Hmm. Wow. So at the age of nine or 10, you see this special on TV. And then more recently in your adult life, you go visit Topaz. So the awareness of your family's heritage and history, or frankly, our country's history Mm -hmm. with this has kind of permeated your kind of entire life. Absolutely. And um, it's really quick, like there's been some really just beautiful literature in the graphic novel space about internment in the last five years. Mm -hmm. Obviously, George Takai's They Called Us the Enemy, but even like Displacement by Kiku Hughes. And I'd recommend everyone like go read those because it's like these firsthand accounts of what families were experiencing before, during, and after. And a lot about, as you were kind of saying, Molly, the during, like you had to endure, you had to form a community, you had to build and endure a culture through all of this. I do want to jump effectively into your work in climate and social justice, but how did that sensing of this part of your heritage, this part of our country's heritage, inform the approach that you would ultimately take to the work you do? Yeah, I I think just always growing up, knowing my family had been imprisoned on their own soil, Mm -hmm. I think it informed, I mean, it did inform my identity, but I think it also, in the back of my head, informed my decision to go into politics. Mm -hmm. Because you realize just how impactful and powerful policies can be. Because at one point you realize that's not just something that happened, right? That was a policy, Mm -hmm. right? A president signed a piece of paper and executive order in the White House, in the building I actually worked in later in my life, right? He signed mm-hmm. that and that's what happened to them, right? And it was and it was based on conversations happening in certain halls and people jockeying for positions and policies before that sheet of paper got formed, right? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think about where the psychological mindset was in the country that led to those policies and how dangerous that is and how we still see elements of that today, right? It's not fully in the past. The vestiges of these policies we've had for for everybody that's been oppressed and experienced oppression in America, which is a lot of groups, right? Yeah. At this stage, those vestiges still exist and are alive today. I think people have to be mindful that it's just not rhetoric and headlines and talking heads on, on the news. It's those talking heads influence the sheet of paper that gets signed that will ultimately impact millions of people's lives. Be exactly. A plant opening or closing or a plant polluting or not polluting or yeah i mean so that's that's something i found really fascinating about some of the stuff you've spoken about in, in other forums is the difference between individual action and policy and what's the more valuable use of one's time can you can you kind of tease that apart based on your lived and worked experience yeah let's talk about that i'm going to tell you a story and a lot of people haven't heard it And they might surprise you. I'm just going to take a step back and think about the individual carbon footprint. These are carbon calculators. People take these all the time and they talk about them all the time. This is where you put in information and it tells you 
basically how bad of a person you are and destroying the planet and what you need to do to change that. Mm. CNN writes articles right about climate change. And then they add to the end, here's what you can do mm. in your own life. And people shame people on social media. I see it all the time. I work with a lot of influencers who are trying to use their platforms for good and get death threats when they post because they say, you take planes, you wear Gore-Tex, right? You use petroleum products. And so you would think that this concept of the individual carbon footprint, you would think that it came from some environmental organization when it was popularized. It was created by an ecologist, but it was really popularized. And Mark Hoffman has a really good article in Mashable where he uncovered these truths. What I'm going to tell you is that in the year 2000, a company, a major corporation, hired a firm, Ogilvy & Mather, really prominent PR firm, and in a $250 million campaign, popularized the idea of the individual carbon footprint for the public. And who was that company? Who was that corporation? It was British Petroleum, or BP, right? You've heard about the, mm. the BP oil spill. It's those people. And why would a fossil fuel company popularize this idea? Well, the idea of the individual carbon footprint, it, it teaches you to do a lot of workarounds to a system based in fossil fuels, right? They tell you, just don't use as much electricity, right? Turn off your lights. They tell you, go vegan for climate. They tell you to take all these actions. These are individual actions that one, oftentimes have high upfront costs for individuals. Some of them save you money, but they often still have upfront costs. And they also take time, energy, and resources to be able to enact them. Like going to biking to work, it means you live within biking distance of your work. It means you own a bike. It means how to ride These aren't fully achievable, realizable things. They're not accessible to everyone. This is my yeah. point, right? It's creating barriers to entering the climate movement and keeping it limited to a privileged elite, which the environmental movement historically has been. And environmentalists often do actually own up to that truth today, but that's a reality. And so basically they're teaching you to create workarounds to their system. And it's a system based on fossil fuels. It blames you for the electricity system. It blames you for the transportation system. The way it's calculated as a metric is it takes the system and it allots blame onto the end users who are forced to use it. But everybody is living in the only system they've been given. Yeah. They often don't have an alternative, right? There's one electricity grid you plug into. And you don't have control over which power plants are going into it. Right. So what we need to think about is systemic change, is policy. And that's how you can actually solve the climate crisis, right? When you have a structural problem as big and massive as climate change, then you need to address it through systemic change. I believe that is the only way to solve the problem. Now, if people want to green their lives, if they have the time, the energy, and the resources, and the privilege to be able to do that, I commend them and they should absolutely keep doing it. And there are actually, there's some things that are really helpful, like electrifying your house, buying an EV, putting solar on your rooftop. Those are like the really high-end expensive things to do, but if you can do them, please. But really what I care about, my goal is to give more people access to the climate movement and make the climate movement fight for everybody. And to do that, we do it through systemic change. And that needs to be the focus. So what I'm asking people to do isn't even change their actions, it's to change their focus. And when we can change our focus, our prioritization, then it can give emphasis. Like the people who are greening their lives, we also need them fighting for systemic action. And there are things that individuals can do that have true impact that people don't believe have impact, but they do. They have a lot more impact than small, minor changes. Because sadly, if you look at the numbers, it's not a drop in the bucket. Too much emissions are emitted globally. And, and here's the thing, like I can't compete with the fossil fuel industry in my own life. But the biggest fallacy is that we tell people that 
everybody that basically we can scale it. We can scale greening yeah. your life to have an yeah. impact. That, that doesn't true. take human nature into account, right? Yeah. I mean, one, the reality is you're not going to get everybody to do these things. And that's right. how we lose elections. If you tell them to, people don't want to be told how to live their lives. And to be honest, I don't really blame them. I want the people who voluntarily will change their lives to do it, but like, I'm not going to tell people how to live their Wait, lives. Wait, Molly, That's are you like... telling me that people don't want to be told what to do? I don't believe that <laughs> in our <laughs> current state of mind, in our current state of the world. Yeah. Well, so you have to think about how has the climate movement been kept so small? Right. And there are a lot yeah. of factors that have led yeah. to this, including systemic ones. But part of this is that there's this barrier to entry. And on top of that, People police people and shame them. And the mm. whole idea of climate guilt, so many you know, climate folks have talked to me about climate guilt. Well, that's an invention of the fossil fuel industry. Oh, they want you to feel that. It's a form of self-hate and it's internalized shame, right? It's, yeah. it's making you hate yourself for existing. How is that how we solve climate change, right? Like if you hate yourself for existing in the way that they want you to, then the question has to be- Then you give up, then you give up. Yeah. Right? Right. And we know from psychology, like what's studied in labs over and over is that when the human body experiences shame, guilt, then it doesn't motivate you to act. It motivates you to sit down and sit back and feel hopeless mm -hmm. and bad. Like, I don't want people to feel bad, right? I want them to feel inspired. And the beauty of the climate crisis is that there is so much opportunity associated with it. Like, I don't just like blindly believe there's opportunity and excitement and opportunity here. I know it's true. It's true. There's so much economic opportunity associated with solving the climate crisis. And so I think if we can, one, again, look wide-eyed, not turn away from the problems and the reality of how this impacts some communities more than others. But if we can look at that, then we can also look at how we can solve climate change for everybody, right? Clean electricity for all. What yeah. we can do is we can put people back to work. We can invest in communities that have been left behind. We can clean up everybody's air. That's what the promise of addressing climate change can do. So it's actually a really exciting thing. And we need to do that. And we can transition away from greening your life, which has a lot of shame associated with it. We can transition into systemic change. That's where we're going to get more of those frames. Well, and, and, the, and the really real of what do you do is... I think you've said before, it's like, go get three more people to vote or go get three more mm -hmm. people to knock on doors with you to vote for those candidates yep. versus just becoming vegan and turning the heat off in the winter. Yeah. And like, who wants to turn off their heat in the winter? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, this is what I'm getting at, right? There's something really important here about how systemic change actually has impacts. So a lot of people will say, when I talk about it generically, which I try never to do, I try to always be specific, but when I talk about it kind of broadly to, to move into that, they say, well, how do I fight for systemic change? What does that even mean? It's way too abstract. Like the mm -hmm. one thing I can do is bike to work. And again, I say, keep bike to work. That's great. But well, registering people to vote is how we fight for systemic change. It is the number one thing I ask people to do when they tell me they want to do something. And they always think I'm going to tell them to ride their bike to work. They think I'm going to tell them some climate action that either is really expensive or probably doesn't have a huge scalable impact. But that's what I tell them. And, and the solutions associated with climate action are really fundamentally premised on this. The public is squarely behind climate action. People don't realize this. This is another fallacy that there are a lot of climate deniers out there. Not true. Very, very few, almost none. 
and that a lot of people like climate change is really politicized and so a lot of people don't want to act there are a lot of people against us no Mm -hmm. there's a salience problem right where climate change isn't the highest priority among other issues although that's changing rapidly so when you look at the american people And you see that they not only believe in climate change, old news, yes, they always have, they want action on climate change, including Republicans, the majority of Republicans. This is real. When you realize that, you have to look at what's happening between them and the people who represent them in Congress. Now, Congress is where you have a disproportionate number of climate deniers, but that isn't reflective of the American public. So what is happening between that disconnect between the public and those who represent them? Is it money? Well, there are very specific mechanisms that are happening Mm. here that are leading to that. And so that's what I want people to associate climate action with, right? It's not greening your life. Well, do it again if you can. But Mm -hmm. it's a few things. It's one, getting corporations out of politics. So fossil fuel industries can't buy candidates. That's a huge buy. Like, look what just happened. Specifically in West Virginia, who live on boats. Yeah, look what just happened with Joe Manchin, right? He makes (laughs) $500,000 on coal dividends, plus all of the funds of his family, on fossil fuels. He drives a Maserati. <laughs> yeah, he, he lives on like a yacht. I mean, it's actually kind of crazy that yeah. this is legal. So yeah. campaign finance reform is a fundamental cornerstone of addressing climate change. Also, getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah. Also, switching to the popular vote so the most votes get the candidate yeah. elected. It's, but it's, just pol- it's, it's fundamentally, it's policy and systems are going to have yeah, a well, size impact. Well, but here's what I'm getting at, right? It yeah. is, that's the end result. But how do you get there? What is the process? That mm. is changing these things. Again, it's registering people to vote, which is an action everybody can take. When you expand the electorate, progressives get elected. And you don't even expand the electorate in a partisan way. These organizations that help do voter registration are not partisan, and they shouldn't be. It's about just when you get more people to vote, when you enfranchise more folks, the end result is progressives get elected, climate candidates get elected who want action. And then the other part is addressing voter suppression and dismantling gerrymandered maps. When we can change these very specific things and people can be like, I need to act on climate. These are the things that need to change. That will ultimately have an impact, right? It's about really fundamentally just making democracy more democratic or restoring the democracy that should exist, right? That are the intentions of democracy to be representative of the American public. When we can do that, that's how we can get systemic change. And the amazing thing is we can even get fight for systemic change despite those things in a really broken system that we're still making progress. And, and a lot of that is due to a lot of other factors, including communications factors. But ultimately, that's where the people are. And that's why they want to take action, right? That's why they are trying to figure out what they can do. What they yeah. can do is register people to vote. And this is a year-round thing. This is not just election years, which is really important. These organizations are registering people to vote constantly. And if you can just get a few friends and go out and register people to vote, if you can register five voters in a year, you have had such a material impact on this country. Like, I, I cannot overstate that enough. You just look at the elections, look at what's happened. There are elections that win by a handful of votes in counties. And the number of people who are registered to vote in your district or who vote in your district, I guarantee you it's way fewer than you think. So mm-hmm. that has a material impact. And compare yeah. that to the guy that does so much to green his life, he's now sitting in a sad, dark house at night. <laughs> right? Freezing cold in the middle of the winter. I have to ask, is he a climate hero? <laughs> Like, I don't think that guy's a climate hero, right? Like, what are you doing? And and there's a really fundamental part of environmental justice that we can get into around this. Yeah. But if across town, right, there's a fossil fuel power plant, a community can't breathe because they live behind it. Right. What the heck did he do for them? So Molly, one thing you're also known for is how you frame climate change, honestly, as a public health issue. 
through the kind of lens of environmental justice. Can you explain how you got there and why people need to be thinking about climate change as public health? Yes. So this starts actually in credit to the Obama White House. But at the White House, we went on a journey to better understand how to talk about climate change, because there is this fundamental component, right? Like my theory of change, to get systemic change, you need policy. To get policy, you need to get the American people on board. And to get the American people on board, you have to make them feel something, right? And I think there's a lot of psychology and neuroscience that we can tap into to better understand that. But we tested all the different frames. And what we found actually was that the most impactful way to talk about climate change was not through the environmental frame, right? Which has dominated the conversation for like the last 20 years, which is polar bears in the Arctic, melting glaciers. It's not something that the average American has the luxury of thinking about with the level of income inequality we have. We found that the most effective way to talk about climate change was through the lens of public health, which surprises a lot of people where they're like, what? (laughs) It's about going green, right? Mm -hmm, I hate the term green. I'm like, stop saying green. It's just a random color. Stop saying save the planet. It's literally like an it's outer space. It's too big. It's an outer right? space metaphor. The planet yeah. will definitely recover. It's always going to be there, whether we'll be here, right? Like we're fighting for our children. And that's what public health talks about. So let me get into why. So communities of color are significantly likelier to have to live near things like fossil fuel power plants, mm-hmm, polluting mm-hmm. highways, refineries, toxic waste sites. Those aren't natural things that just kind of happen. Those are policy decisions where we prioritize some people's health over others and we consider some expendable. And this is actually even significantly likely or not even based on income inequality. There are studies where you can see that like it was just counting how many black people live in a community to figure out whether you put some sort of really polluting structure there. And so what does that do? Well, one in 10 black children in America have asthma. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that one more time. 10% of American black children have asthma. And this is so shocking to people. They fact check me because they don't believe me. It's like the number one thing I get fact checked on. It's true. And this is Mm. thanks to the NAACP's amazing research here. And so people often talk about communities of color are significantly likelier to be impacted by the impacts of climate change, right? The the results like natural disasters, but they don't talk about the sources. Yeah. These are front frontline communities, right? This is our electricity system. And this is what clean energy is intended to combat. So when you can aim for systemic change, right? And you're not the guy that sits in a sad, dark house who did nothing mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. help those communities across town. You could maybe make some cognitive gymnastics to make that claim, but really it's about systemic change. It's about regulating emissions directly, fossil fuel companies, stimulating advancement of technology, right? Supporting that through policy, all of those things that can eventually lead to, for example, the fossil fuel power plant closing. Well, it has more of an immediate short-term and a mid-term effect, as well as the long-term innovation delivery that that we ultimately need to get to. Yes. And and I believe like the most important thing is like the air starts to clean up. It's the same story every the externality. time. externality, yeah. Yeah. So that's really what we're fighting for, if you think about that. And that's really important. And we need to frame it that way. And, there, and there's like a lot around... If, uh, anybody's interested in this, George Lakoff's this amazing cognitive linguist. I'd encourage everybody to check out. Don't think out. of an elephant. <laughs> yep. Don't think of an elephant. He has a great book called The Political Mind. Yeah. This is based on his work, but he's, he talks about framing. I keep talking about that. Yeah. Framing is about kind of meeting people where they are and, and using metaphor in more effective ways. It's based on psychology and neuroscience, right? So like, for example, when I have a thought, there's a series of neurons that fire. And when I have that thought again, it fires again, and that web grows stronger. And so mm-hmm. we have this quote, neuroscience of neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm-hmm. You're creating neural pathways. This is neuroplasticity, right? And so mm-hmm. when somebody says something like, for example, climate action hurts the economy, which is a standard anti-climate narrative, 
But you say it, it enough times. You say it yeah. enough times. It's in the brain. It's literally in the brain. And when I go stand next to that guy and I yell, no, climate action does not hurt the economy. It's not effective, right? I'm telling people what to not think about. And that's actually thought suppression is very difficult. There's a lot of research that talks about this. Thought suppression is very difficult. So I'm still advancing an association, a wiring in your brain between climate action and a hurt economy. So if we bring this into the sphere of public health, right? We reframe, and President Obama did this when he reframed healthcare, right? Another obviously public health issue. People said Obamacare costs too much. He turned that around rather than say, no, it's affordable or no, Obamacare does not cost too much. He said, healthcare is a human right. Mm -hmm. And what's associated with human rights? It has no cost, right? Mm -hmm. You don't put a price on a human right. right. Same with health, right? So when the frame of, for example, climate action and hurt economy includes things of like balance and compromise, that's associated with it. But when you talk about public health, there is no balance or sacrifice, right? You do not find balance in the health and well-being of your children. You do not compromise on the health and well-being of your children, right? You fight for it at all costs. And that's what we need to do for climate change, so which is why it's an effective frame. So rather than say like, okay, climate action is worth it. People say this all the time. Progressives say this. Pro-climate people say this. Climate action is worth it. What you're really saying is worth the consequences, worth yeah, the yeah, sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. And so that's responding to their frame, right? That's what saying climate action does not hurt the economy does. Versus creating um, a new frame. Exactly. And that's what we need to do in public health and like systemic change, right? Like green your life. I know part of me is like, I should stop talking about green your life. It's just only talk about systemic change because it's reframing. <laughs> Although I do feel like I have to address it, but that's what we're getting at here. Thought suppression is difficult. Don't use it as a tool. So when we do like wildfires and, and all of these like really harmful narratives, we're too late. You're literally putting that in people's brains. There's a neural pathway you are creating. Mm. which is why we have to be very careful about language. It has an impact. Molly, you speak about this with so much passion and it's infectious. I mean, you really do make it sound like all we need to do is is uh, for each one of us to take a small action and that's going to make a huge impact. And I'm just curious to know, where did this all start? Like, where did your idealism start and what inspired this? Growing, I mean, kind of going back to growing up, you know, I was really fortunate to have parents that always told me, find what you love. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of kids aren't afforded that privilege, especially where I grew up, but I, I was told that. It wasn't until I was in my late teens when I was doing student organizing for the Obama campaign, I discovered this guy, I thought he was really inspiring. Nobody could pronounce his name, but he was running for president and we were told he had no shot in hell. So the only people that were working for him were kids who basically didn't know better, <laughs> including me. <laughs> and... If Barack Obama, this like unlikely candidate, hadn't run for president, my life would look very different. And not just like from a specific standpoint, from like a philosophical standpoint, because yeah. I realized there was a fundamental part of what I had learned missing, which is find what you love, but you have to add in and find how it impacts other people. Hmm. It wasn't even on my radar. I just didn't think about that. And so when you realize that there is that missing component, you can take what you're good at, what you enjoy, and you can just apply it to something. That yeah. has an impact. That's important, right? I lived in San Francisco for years. You can make some like tech app that has more emojis or something like that. Or you can apply those skills to helping elect a new representative or some new senator that's going to have a real impact here. When we can do that, it kind of changes you. And so especially when I was graduating or growing up, it was really trendy to be cynical. Like I remember this. 
Mm. People were misanthropic. Like it was a funny, interesting thing. It was almost a sign of intelligence to be cynical. It was our Nirvana generation. Yeah. 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 And what was happening is like the auto industry needed to be bailed out. We had eight years under President Bush with horrifying wars. Policies were failing in America. Institutions were failing. And we were seeing that sometimes for pretty much the first time in our lives. And Mm -hmm. President Bush was the only president I'd ever known. And so at one point, I realized that that cynicism was a part of me. In fact, I almost wore it as badge of honor. And when Barack Obama came around, he described a very progressive form of patriotism. You know, he would say, only in this country is my story possible. Mm -hmm. And that changed me. And so I became truly an unapologetic idealist. And I don't think I could ever look back on that. It's just part of who I am, right? Like there's no going back on that. And I truly believe climate change and solving this crisis can fall within that framing because it is real. I think that every day I get to wake up and work on this issue, I have more hope. Yeah. And I want other people to feel that, right? Because we've had these doom and gloom. These were too late. It's too mm. big. It's mm-hmm. over. It's in the past. We're screwed. Narratives. Yeah. And I don't blame people for being like, screw this. I don't want to think about this, right? I want to look away. I don't blame them for that because we haven't reached them. So I think that's where it started. And another part of this was like, I just have conversations with people where I would just go off about carbon footprint people and the shame, (laughs) the personal guilt, the self-hate around climate change. And they would just fight with me. It's the superhero morality. It's the, uh, how do you frame it in a, this is the challenge of our generation. Here's how we save the world versus here, how do we adapt? Yeah. Well, I do think Gen Z is doing more of that. Hmm. But again, I think we failed the public on the climate narrative so far. It's changing. And there's a Hmm. lot of excitement around that. It's changing when we focus actually less on adaptation resilience in terms of a narrative and more on mitigation, because mitigation is about solving the source of climate change, the problem. Well, well, so you've had the privilege and the honor to kind of sit in two different houses that have very optimistic outlooks. So you didn't just volunteer and knock on doors for Obama. You went and worked in his White House. And now you work with some of the largest corporations in the world who is trying to make an outsized impact. So- Can you talk about what does that optimistic action look like on the inside of kind of these two houses? Yeah. So my work is focused on the electricity sector. It's clean energy. That's my career. Mm -hmm. And the reason I kind of fell into that slice of the greenhouse gas pie is because when you can solve electricity, you can also solve transportation because we're electrifying transportation. You can also solve parts of industry. You can also solve buildings. All of these things like are so systemically connected to clean energy and and, like this clean energy future and economy we're building. So that's exciting. And here's the narrative that's not being told. It drives me crazy, right? The source and the problem of climate change, it is solvable. Nobody knows, like there is an end point. There is a promised land. And the best part, the second part of that narrative is that we are well on our way. And so when we talk about we're screwed, There are components of this that people are getting at, and I understand where they're coming from. They're looking at adaptation resilience. They're looking at the impacts of climate change that are already on their way. Those experiences are real and authentic, and we need to address them and focus on them as well. But the story of like true solutions isn't quite being told. And what that is, is it's a mitigation narrative. And mitigation is policies to curb greenhouse gases in the US or globally. But like, that's what I was working on, domestic climate mitigation policy at the White House. And that's when I realized like people would be like, isn't climate change so depressing to work on? And I would just say, what are you talking about? 
every day is more exciting because we're building this new economy and it's in the process going to help everybody, right? When we address climate change, we increase everybody's quality of life. These are narratives, right? This is a policy framework, but it's not falling into the communications narrative yet. We're steadily working on that. But I think part of this is like documentary films actually have had a huge role in, in screwing this up. Because they're the ones that like create <laughs> there, there is a Ken Burns style of storytelling that works, yeah. but it's dark. It's dark. It's dark. I mean, it's partially because narratives are easy with adaptation. Like, right. Like you have a lot of visuals associated with the natural disaster, personal stories of folks being associated the stock, with the Yeah, the stock video there. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. But like, I honestly search YouTube for like climate change. Oh my God, what you will see, even an inconvenient truth, Al Gore's film. I, so I, it's a film about a PowerPoint, right? First off, what? (laughs) Hang on, PowerPoint with a crane, to be clear. (laughs) And then second off, so I watched a preview for it and it's okay. It's like black background, white font, all caps. Like if you care about your children. You will like, like it's it's scary. It has like uh, natural right, disasters, like, and then it has like a graph going up, which is so scary. Like, so it, does that mean like wrong. you and Jay are gonna like narrate your own documentary to like Tegan and Sarah? Everything is awesome. Is that is that gonna happen? <laughs> I mean, I believe clean energy is about hope, <laughs> and it's about opportunity. Absolutely. That's where I am, right? And so when we can talk about that, when we can talk about cutting greenhouse gas emissions at the source, at the sector, that's what mitigation is. That's what systemic change is. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're going to get to that promised land. Like that's uplifting, but I'm not saying it just because it's uplifting and exciting and and it does recruit more people and get them more involved. That's great. I'm glad that that's an outcome, but it's true. And that's fundamentally- You're clearly clearly fired up about it. And I I think you see other people can be if they could just frame it a certain way, because we've been taught to frame it a very different way. If, If you're sitting on a couch, right? And somebody tells you, hey, I've got a problem. And you're like, okay, what? And you're like- You've already set yourself up for something dark. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then you're like, it's totally unsolvable and we're screwed and everyone's freaking out. And by the way, it's your fault and you should feel really bad about that. Mm. All right. Are you going to stand up? Like, okay, so here's the problem. Rationally, progressives actually think that this makes sense because rationally it may, right? You're saying if you scare people enough, they will be so scared they will act because they don't want that future. But then you're like, the future's already here, right? But, but Mars is saying, hey, there's a really awesome party that we can go have a lot of fun and make a lot of money at. You ready to go? You're not doing anything. <laughs> and, and by the way, in the process, we're going to advance technology. We're going to save people's lives. We're it's going to be fucking Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. It's awesome. Like, this is awesome, <laughs> right? I want people to know, like, this is, like, amazing. Registering people to vote is fun. And you give them a voice. Like, what can be more powerful? Yeah. People who like have not had a voice their entire lives. And like, by the way, I have registered people to vote in like counties in Virginia. You go down there and you register people to vote and they're like, I'm so glad you came. I've been waiting for you guys. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like there are communities that rely on canvassers coming through to register them to vote. It's really important. You yeah. meet people where they are. I think this is like fundamental. People need to realize people are being disenfranchised and or are never given the opportunity to be enfranchised because of how the system works. Yeah. And we need to address that, right? And we can meet people where they are in a very real way by yeah. registering them to vote. And apparently we can use some really innovative ways like using dating apps to help people to vote. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah, initiative? Second, second result when we Google your name, Molly. <laughs> oh, God. So like, that's so funny. Wow. When, <laughs> when CNN and Slate and Vogue reached out, I was like, 
okay, this is not going to be good for like, job <laughs> like one I'm day like, I'm going to be on a podcast. And... Right. I was like, if some future employer Googles me, it's like, oh God, but what in the process, we're going to get more people. So I'm just going to say, let's just do it. Okay. Yeah. So I basically realized in the last election that I had incredible geotargeting capability with dating apps. Like, I mean, these are amazing. You can actually go into specific neighborhoods and battleground states. And honestly, with COVID, it was really hard for campaigns to figure out like how to reach people. It was really hard this year. I mean, it's always hard. And reaching people is hard. Reaching people that'll talk to you is even harder. Reaching people that'll talk to you and be willing to have a conversation of being persuaded around an election, that's extraordinary. And what we found is that there were pockets of voters that I had no idea existed that hadn't made up their mind for the Biden-Trump election in the last couple of days. And you're realizing this. If a couple days before the election, you haven't made up your mind about two candidates that could not be more different, then something's happening. You don't really want to make up your mind. And this is what we found is people would literally be like, thanks for having this conversation with me. Who should I vote for? Like, tell me, enlighten me. Why is this candidate better? Like, they truly wanted to know. There were times canvassers, they'd be like, oh, are you one of the canvassers? Because we hit people like 10 times, which (laughs) just showed how many people were out there canvassing on dating apps, which is amazing. They'd be like, oh, you're one of the canvassers, right? And the canvasser would be like, yeah, I know if it's annoying. I don't want to waste your time if you don't want to talk to me. Like, I'm being respectful, right? And they would be like, no, don't go. Tell me who to vote for. And you're like, awesome, let's talk about Mm. this, right? Yeah. And people were very honest about what they were doing on the dating apps and people were receptive. And that was really powerful because we could also talk to people who had made up their minds and say, hey, do you want to vote? Do you want time the polls are open for you? And we could give them that information. That was like the get out the vote component. But the other part I never thought we'd be doing is persuasion that close to an election. And campaigns stop doing persuasion. They cut it off. And then they just start focusing on get out the vote in the last few days. And then we realize, whoa, these undecided voters exist in very large numbers in like Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So let's talk to as many as we can. I mean, people were talking to people on dating apps when they were standing in line and like boards. They're on a dating app. I I knew people that so many people said, I'm not going to make up my mind until I'm in the voting booth. That's what I'm going to make up my mind. And you're like, okay, let's talk. So it was really powerful. And we had a conversion rate that was just mind-blowing to me. Believable, but nuts. Canvassing, it takes a lot of people to hit when you knock on doors. Cold calling, landlines, takes a lot of calls before you you can even talk to somebody, let alone persuade somebody or give them information. Dating apps was a whole different story. And there's a great organization called Friends Vote Together that's run by my friend Kate, who's really amazing because she also kind of caught on to this, right? Especially as we get older, it's about a new way of campaigning to millennials. They don't have landlines, right? They don't open their door. They're never home. They're constantly moving. Their addresses change. So what she started doing was devising new ways of campaigning far beyond dating apps. She was like, dating apps were on her radar, but she had people campaigning people on Twitch, which is like a video gaming platform for anybody that doesn't know. But people talk over like headsets while they game. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they started having conversations about getting out of the vote. And the best part is people actually wanted to hear them. They wanted to talk to them. Like you'd think that people were like, screw this. But if you're just honest with people about what you're doing and you're saying, we're devising new ways of campaigning, this is an easier way to reach you. Are you willing to have a conversation with me? And they say, yes, go for it. Also, Look, you know, I, I don't want to say we've jumped the shark, but this isn't so far-fetched when Obama shows up on Between Two Ferns, when AOC shows up on a Twitch stream, right? So you are meeting people where they are. And again, to your point is they're okay to have another conversation about another thing because you've literally come to their door. Oh, yeah. 
that's how you come to their door, right? That's how you come to a millennial's door right, is you right. meet them where they are. And like Caroline Gleick and I, who she's an amazing environmental activist and ski mountaineer with a very large following, like we did Instagram lives. That's how we were talking to people about voting and giving them information about where to vote and the states to target. We also said like, literally go through your phone and look at everybody that lives in one of the battleground states. We're going to list them all now. Whoever you know, call them, talk to them, text them. I don't care. Send them a LinkedIn message. Just make sure they have the information they need to vote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was great. The whole point is be as annoying as possible because mm. there's way too much at stake not to be. And people were really receptive to that. And, and honestly, this is all about accessibility, right? Like we want to get more people. And the first place I sent people was the, the Biden campaign. And then if they weren't going to do that, then I was like, come on board. I have a way faster way for you to get involved. Just read this like Instagram post and you're set. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking a lot about your reaching younger people where they're at. I guess what I would love to know is if you had an Instagram message to send to your younger self, even though I guess our younger self, we would have been on Friendster or MySpace. What would, <laughs> what would that MySpace message to, to younger Molly be? I, I, I want to think about this. There's some key I figured out and I don't know what it is right now, but I like want to tell you. And the secret to life is two things. <laughs> Honestly, I think it would be about idealism. I think it would be the funny, trendy cynicism is going to get you nowhere in life, Molly. Start finding out how to be inspired. And that's what I believe we're trying to do in the climate movement. We're trying to figure out how to be inspired. I'm just thinking if we were really on MySpace, like, would you post that? Would you send it as a message? But anyway, we... we... <laughs> you know, I did I did post lots of things like that. I mean, I had Facebook. I remember it was so exciting when, like, high schoolers got into Facebook. We were, like, finally in it. I remember I'd, like, end posts about joining the Obama campaign or getting out and volunteering. It was like, it's so we begin. Okay. I remember his presidency. Everybody thought, oh, it's over. The campaign's done. We're good. But I said, okay. and so we began. Like the whole idea was like, this is the start and it's going to be fucking awesome. What's about mm -hmm. to happen? And I have the same optimism with the Biden administration. A lot of my colleagues are there doing incredible stuff, getting stuff done at like how many executive actions they came in on day one. Part of it too is again, my brand of patriotism, which was so informed by Obama's. And it would say like, change is not predestined. It is earned when we put our hand on the arc and we bend it in the direction of justice. And the arc is a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. that says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends mm -hmm. towards justice. And Obama would often elaborate on that. And he would say it bends toward justice, but it does not bend on its own. Exactly. It, exactly. It bends yeah. because we put our yeah. hand on that arc and we bend it in that direction. Right. And this idea that again, change is not predestined. Like we tend to think that the natural order of things is that things just kind of get better right? More justice, more human rights, more equality. We don't often consider that there would be a parallel world we could be living in where people hadn't fought for the rest of us, right? People hadn't progressed society in the country and people died for that, right? We don't think about that. We just kind of assume that if they hadn't done it, somebody else would, right? Like the natural order of things. And so what I started to realize, again, is this idea that the natural force of the world isn't necessarily toward progress. We progress society, not because of that, but in spite of that, you fight against the natural order and yeah. you create change, yeah. but you have to fight hard and everybody has to be on board. So I think that idea of natural order is not what we take for granted, what we think it is, is kind of a powerful frame. Molly, you are so full of passion and energy, 
And it's just so infectious. Like, I feel like I want to go on Hinge now and help people to vote. Just kidding. Uh, uh, Sharon, Sharon, you and I are not allowed on Hinge. We're not on, uh, yeah, we're not we're allowed on Hinge. It is a specific but, demographic we reach for sure. Yeah. But I think it's time now for speed round. Are you ready for a speed round, Molly? Sure. Okay. Wrong answer. No one's ever ready for speed round, Yeah, Molly. I don't think I am. I lied. I, I think. I have faith in you, Molly. I think oh you God, can do this. I'm going to be like, I have no idea how to answer this. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> or what I get weird one... answers that aren't actually quite, yeah. You'll get bonus <laughs> points for weird yeah. answers. You're going to be okay. just fine. You're going to be just fine. What's one thing about you that no one expects? Hmm. I think, I mean, when they look at me that I climb mountains, that's like, what the fuck? Like, they're like, you really? <laughs> You can carry weight up mountains. Like, I don't look like a typical mountaineer. Your name is not Sven and you do not have a beard. Yes. No, it's all men out Apparently, you don't just climb mountains. You climb frozen waterfalls as well. Love ice climbing. Yeah, that's... I spent a lot of time in canyons where it's cold enough where the water freezes, like the vertical waterfalls freeze, and then you can climb them. And it's like the best thing ever. And then I just try to apply those skills to the Alaska range. So I think people are like, really? Oh, that's kind of weird and random. And huh. <laughs> it's so cool. It's so kick-ass. It's so cool. Molly, what's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh, God, my favorite book. I think it would sound so incriminating if I said I related to these characters. Okay, there's a book called The Largesse of the Sea Maiden by Dennis Johnson. But it's, a, it's very Americana, like, right? It's about all these aspects of American life. I don't know if there are like specific characters I relate to. Probably. Uh, a lot of them are kind of derelict. So, that's like, But there's a lot of topics he explores about American life that I think about those things all the time. I think about how they relate to climate change too, right? Like we're trying to reach so many different people, which is so important. And they have so many life experiences. And he, I think, talks about a lot of those things. But I do also think about this journalist who wrote this book called Lost Connections, which is pretty amazing. Johan Hari struggled with depression his whole life, and he went on a journey to kind of better understand the causes of climate change with like the latest research. And not only looks into the research, but actually understands like the stories of why these researchers are doing this, which are pretty amazing as well. Um, But he found that there were so many misconceptions and fallacies, including in the medical sphere about depression, and found some that are, you know, kind of extraordinary, some treatments that are very kind of cutting edge and different and kind of scare people, but are having an impact. So I think that I think Elton John wrote on the cover, like this amazing book will change your life. I think it had a really impact, big impact on me. And I related to a little bit of his story. That's great. What is your favorite mom dish? My mom cooks a lot of random types of stuff. Can I say my dad dish? <laughs> yeah, sure. Dad dishes count too. Uh, donburi. Yeah. Say that again. Donburi. It's a Japanese egg and rice and chicken dish. So good. Mm. Do, you, do you put the egg in whole? Or like yes. uh, hard boiled. Okay. Oh no! It. I mean, it's it's it? it's cooked. Yeah. Okay. It's it's scrambled and you put shoyu in it, or soy sauce. It's a really good dish. Super savory. Nice. Yum. What's your least favorite food? Oh god, durian or ratatouille? Oh my god, uh. I have like nightmares about ratatouille from eating it as a kid. Wait, <laughs> what's wrong with ratatouille? See, durian I get. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's acceptable. Ratatouille. Honestly, it's probably totally fine on a normal dish, but as a kid, it was like hell. <laughs> because of because that. of all the vegetables? So, I mean, the fact that I still remember yeah. says something, I think, because I think the last time I ate it, I was like maybe six. 
I, I think that's the one question we ask that I think tells us the most about our guests. It takes us an right. hour to get there. Um, when I was climbing in Alaska, I was in the Wrangell St. Elias and we had to ration food. We got caught in a whiteout in a storm high up on the mountain. It was really bad. We we're rationing food. I was starving and I'd like eaten dinner. You eat from freeze dried bags. And then I like threw it away and I put like these like ble- you have these like bleach wipes you use to like wipe your face to like stay human and i threw them in there because it was like my trash bag and the next morning i realized i had to eat it like i had to eat what was left in there and it was like just like crumbs and i had to eat through the leftovers of that bag and it was so nasty even when you're so hungry that's like pretty gross so (laughs) that there's probably so bad so i think yeah ration food high up in the wrangell st elias would would definitely be the answer (laughs) I was thinking there's probably something inedible I've eaten. So that's why. (laughs) Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? Probably like, I I really like like self-development. There are all these really amazing figures on Instagram that talk about self-development. Sylvie Kukassian is this really amazing expert in attachment theory. And I just really like following and and her teaching. So I think that might be one, probably somebody in like the self-development space. I think that would be really cool or like mental Mm. health or something like that. Hmm. Awesome. Molly, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? It means fighting for change because you have to. I think a lot of people don't, but like we have to, right? When I think about what happened to my grandparents, you just have no choice but to fight for social justice. And like, that's what my colleagues and I did when I was at the White House. So I think that's what that means for me. Well, Molly, I've been hearing about you from our mutual friend, Jay, for a very long time. And I'm glad we finally had the opportunity for you to come and infect us with your optimism (laughs) and idealism, more importantly. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Molly. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.